intruded like uninvited guests. I must have walked at least a million miles through these old paint-chipped corridors and climbed the back stairs enough times to circle the moon. The gray cement block walls were the same ones I'd leaned against many a night, so bone-tired that my back felt like a pack mule and my feet felt like two dead clumps of flesh hanging off my ankles. But there had been an upside, too. I'd managed to fall in love a time or two in this old crumbling house of wretchedness. Oh, those were the days. Stolen kisses in empty elevators. Steamy moments in deserted stairwells. Faces obscured by surgical masks with eyes that said things that lips never could. Love among the ruins. Irrepressible love that sprang up among the drama and agony of an inner-city hospital. Like blades of grass that managed to push their way through and thrive in the cracks of a concrete sidewalk. I was young and romantic then. I had dreams of falling madly in love and getting married. Dreams that died a painful and lingering death. Now here I was again, back in the ring for round two, but not at all prepared for it. I comforted myself with the fact that at least I was older and hopefully wiser now. I would never allow anyone to stomp on my heart again, the way Michael had all those years ago. I had put all those feelings to sleep long ago, seven years ago to be exact, and I didn't want anyone trying to revive them. No heroics for this old heart. Just leave it alone and let it die of natural causes. At least it didn't hurt anymore. Cardiac euthanasia, I supposed. Every time I start a new job, I force myself to get off the floor and have my dinner at a table like a civilized human being, instead of taking hurried gulps of food between watching cardiac monitors, signing off charts, and paging doctors. My resolve never lasts longer than the first week, but I always start out with good intentions. It was only my third day back, so I was still intent on actually taking my allotted 30-minute dinner hour. I rounded the corner and entered the hospital cafeteria, which was now called the dining room, in a pathetic administrative attempt to compete with other hospitals for patients, or clients, as they were now called. The sign over the door and the furniture may have been new, but the entree was still the same old unidentifiable chicken dish they'd served seven years ago. It might even have been the very same chicken, for all I knew. I watched passively as a morbidly obese, pimply-faced young man wearing a chef's hat plopped the bland-looking hodgepodge onto my plate. I paid for my poison and took it to a window seat in the far corner of the room, secretly glad that the six o'clock rush was long over and that I wouldn't have to be sociable with anyone. I just wasn't in the mood. I was either temporarily spaced out or having some kind of petite mall seizure as I stared blankly out the badly smudged cafeteria window. It wasn't until I felt a rather large hand trespassing on my shoulder, accompanied by a familiar male voice, that I was able to break my thousand-yard stare out into the sultry June night. Christine, an awestruck voice uttered softly. Michael Stein. I recognized his baritone even before turning around. It was a voice that, seven years ago, had sung me love songs, 
whispered X-rated sentiments into my eager ear and dropped a hand grenade into my heart. I knew I'd have to run into him sooner or later. I was just hoping it would be later. I hadn't prepared a speech yet, though I'd rehearsed at least a few dozen different versions during the endless ride through Texas on Interstate 10. None of them said exactly what I wanted so much to communicate, namely that no man had ever wounded me the way he had, and that I hadn't been able to love anyone else since the day he pulled the plug on our relationship. I had watched from my window that day as he drove away, and I had had to bite the drapes to keep from begging him to come back. I wanted him to feel very guilty now for his lack of commitment to me, but not guilty enough to rule out seeing me again. Michael, I smiled, doing my best impression of someone who has moved beyond the pain and on with her own life. I hooked my foot around the chair next to me and shoved it away from the table. Sit down, please. I beckoned with what I hope was a new and alluring maturity. He seemed relieved to encounter graciousness. I suppose he expected the verbal daggers I used to hurl at him in the old days. But seven years is a long time, and I wanted to prove to him how far I'd come in all those years. Besides, I didn't want him to know how much it still hurt to look into those transparent blue eyes of his, or that he could still hypnotize me with just a glance. He was wearing the uniform of an anesthesiologist. Green OR scrubs, blue paper shoe covers, and a matching blue surgical hat that did nothing to hide the unfamiliar gray hairs at his temples. Good. I was glad he had some gray hairs now. I hoped maybe he was balding, too. Of course, I would have liked it better if he had had an expanding waistline to go along with the gray hair, but his waist looked just as trim as ever. Maybe better. You look great, Christine. He was lying. I must have gained at least ten pounds since he'd last seen me, and the years hadn't been nearly as kind to me as they'd been to him. Surely he had to notice the little fine lines around my eyes that no amount of moisturizer could erase. So do you, I lied. Well, okay. Maybe it wasn't a lie. He actually looked better than he ever had. But he still had some serious explaining to do if he had any thoughts of rekindling our relationship. I had no doubt it was safe to assume that passion like ours didn't just evaporate into space. In fact, I felt little stirrings for him already, and I was certain he must be feeling them too. He began making superficial conversation, but I might as well have been in a soundproof booth off stage. I didn't hear a word of it. I was too busy flashing back to the days when Michael had loved me. Or so I'd thought. It was during his internship and I had been an experienced trauma nurse who taught him everything he knew. It was always like that with interns. They came on board so humble, so willing to learn, so respectful of nurses and grateful for the things we could teach them. By July 1st of the following year, however, when they magically turned into residents, they usually forgot our names and from then on treated us like the brain-dead patients we cared for. But not Michael. Our relationship had been very different right from the start. We had worked side by side every day in life and death situations, and panic had become a way of life for us. It is common knowledge among nurses and doctors that there is something electrical, almost sexual, about working in emergency situations. The adrenaline starts gushing. 
Body temperatures rise and pulses pound. Add a little testosterone to the mix, and you have a recipe for romance. Something about those chronic adrenaline rushes and daily exposure to so much human suffering makes you face your own mortality. And it's not a pretty sight. You want to deny death and to confirm that you, at least, are still alive. You slowly notice that you are starting to lose the ability to feel emotions, and you desperately look for ways to prove that it's not so. Michael and I reaffirmed one another's feelings and aliveness many times over the three years we worked together. We fell in love over an intubation tray one night after we lost a 47-year-old man to a ruptured aortic aneurysm. Michael asked me if it would be okay for him to practice his intubation skills on the man, since he was already dead, and intubating recessa Annie just wasn't the same as the real thing. Michael had to learn on someone, and we were pretty sure a dead man wouldn't mind letting a green intern practice some much-needed skills on him. After all, it just might save someone else's life one day. I quietly closed the curtain around the patient and went out to tell the family that the doctor was still working on him, but that it didn't look good. When I came back to the bedside, Michael had successfully intubated his first real patient. He invited me to the little hole-in-the-wall pub across the street to celebrate when I got off duty at 11.30, and that's how the whole thing got started. All of our senses seemed heightened by the urgency of our work. Our admiration and love for one another quickly took root in the fertile field of crash carts, central lines, and ambu bags. It was the beginning of a three-year love affair, and it was all so passionately perfect. Until the day I brought up the subject of marriage. That's when all the courage he'd shown cracking chests, running codes, and talking to malpractice attorneys completely deserted him. Michael Stein was obviously capable of great things, but commitment wasn't one of them. Why he never mentioned this little matrimonial phobia to me three years earlier when there still was a chance for me to get out with my sanity intact, I will never know. I do, however, suspect that it had something to do with the fact that he knew how stubborn I was and that I would have ended our relationship right then and there had I seen him for the commitment coward that he was. Michael said I was headstrong. I said that's one of the reasons he loved me. He agreed but he said that was also one of the reasons he wouldn't marry me. Of course, there were lots of fights and dramatic overtures, but in the end, I threw up the white flag of surrender and left Metro Medical Center and Michael. I hoped they'd be miserable together. I just heard about a new kind of nursing called travel nursing, where you work for an agency and take short-term contracts around the country. I decided it sounded like the perfect bomb for a broken heart, and I set off to live the life of a tumbleweed, drifting from city to city. Of course, I ended up putting down roots in the first place I was assigned. Los Angeles looked awfully good to me after a lifetime of East Coast winters and the laid-back California lifestyle wasn't exactly repulsive either. But I'm going off on a tangent here. Now here I was, staring into Michael's luminous blue eyes again, trying to squelch the little seeds of hope that were sprouting in my heart. That's when I noticed the shiny gold band on his left hand. And needless to say, my heart-stopping realization wasn't lost on him. I could see he was uncomfortable and for once speechless. He just smiled sheepishly while I gawked. Who? I asked, barely able to coax the word past the lump in my throat. I don't think you know her, he said, shifting uncomfortably in the metal cafeteria chair. 
Try me, I challenged. I had to know, even if it killed me. It almost did. He couldn't even look me in the eye when he said the name. Sheila Conlon, he mumbled with an insincere grin. What? I was horrified, angry, destroyed. I couldn't halt the words that began spilling from somewhere deep in my gut. You mean you wouldn't marry me? Me who loved you? Me who was your very best friend in the entire world? You said it was because you were afraid of marriage? Then you go and marry some... some... Hold it, Christine, he said defensively. He raised those lovely blue eyes to look at me and simultaneously softened his tone. God, he still knew how to play me. Look, you have every right to be angry. I understand that. You don't understand anything, I interrupted angrily. He cut me off. Look, Sheila's a good person. You might even like her if you got to know her. Don't make me puke, I warned as my fury took over. Sheila Conlon? Of course I knew Sheila Conlon, and he knew I knew her. She had been my nursing supervisor all those years ago, and Michael had heard me complain about her many a night. She never liked me, because I was always threatening to call 60 Minutes and have them do an expose on the horrendous staffing shortages of Metro Medical Center. Sheila Conlon. She wasn't even pretty. She wasn't even smart. She was just a typically frumpy, submissive nurse. Oh, I guess maybe that explained it. Maybe Michael was threatened by strong, intelligent women. He certainly wouldn't be the first successful man to marry a wimpy, brainless, subservient woman. How come I never noticed that about him before? Maybe I would have toned down my attitude a bit had I known. No. What was I thinking? Besides, Michael had always acted like he admired my rebellious streak. Had he just been humoring me for three years? I guess old Sheila must have some other kind of talent, I said cattily, because God knows she doesn't have a brain. Surprisingly, he took that comment without batting an eye. Obviously, he had decided not to fight with me, no matter how insulting I got. Look, Christine, he said in his softest voice ever. I'm happy now. Can't you just be happy for me? No, Michael, I can't, I retorted, embarrassed by the tremor in my voice. And you'll excuse me if I don't send a belated wedding gift. I always resort to sarcasm when I'm feeling vulnerable. You still switch to sarcasm when you're feeling vulnerable, he noted with an amused smile. I hated him at